Okay, everybody, welcome to um, Scales and Sales Part 2. We have three amazing speakers, uh, Kirsten Larson, Michael Wallstead, and Hayden Rogers. The format is 10 minutes each for each of the speakers, and then a Q&A. So who are these people? Uh, Kirsten has a background in government, climate, and sustainability policy. She started asking, why aren't we talking about food? Moved between government and research, investigating food systems at University of Melbourne since 2007. Uh, she had the increasing realization that a change is coming from the ground up and broke out in 2011 to start the Open Food Network with partner Serenity Hill. They are now also farming in northeast Victoria, commencing a collaborative regenerative, regenerative farm journey. Michael Halstead um, is, hang on, <laughs> pages, a local in South Australia, a local to me in Gawler, um, and he's the dairyman, uh, a brand of which he can be justly proud. He moved to the Barossa with his German parents when he was 12, that's only a few years ago, and age 23, Michael brought a sheep property and developed his own dairy and vineyard, which he has operated for 38 years whoops, <laughs> did the maths, uh, while working concurrently as a town planner and consulting, a consultant specialising in peri-urban areas. His chair Barossa, is he chairs Barossa Food and is director of the Barossa Trust Mark Board. He was formerly a chair of the Barossa Farmers Market. Ten years ago, Michael moved from commodity farming to specialty food production. He developed the dairyman range of cream, butter and milk, uh, buttermilk, uh, from a herd of 20 Jersey cows, and under the same brand, he raises free-range heritage breeds Berkshire, Tamworth, and Hampshire pigs and veilers. He supplies Adelaide and Brosser ma uh, markets with fresh, cured, and smoked meats. Um, and Hayden Rogers is um, in, his property is Sunlands near Wakery in South Australia. Um, he's worked as a chef. Uh, for five years, but in 1995, dug up his backyard, rental property, and grew coloured lettuce to sell to restaurants in Adelaide. Oops, here we go again. In 1996, he leased 10 acres in Strathalbyn, um, which is near Nomad, uh, for 10 years, and four acres in Ashton in the hills, which he still uses for food growing. In 2006, he opened Doof Doof Cafe, which was, we know, food backwards, doof, and store and served and sold his own produce. He sold the store to buy a developed orchard near Wakery, where he also grows field, vegetable field crops. He's threatening to go into dryland uh, agriculture, growing pulses, and in short, Hayden is a goer. So, our three, not that the others aren't, but, you know, so... Um, Different sales for different scales, and um, we didn't actually talk about who was going to go first and how you would like to be time-capped. Um, seven minutes, three minutes to go, something like that. Okay, and who would like to go first? Third. You're third. <laughs> okay, Kirsten, you're first. <laughs> Uh, in good news, I'm really good at ignoring the noise that my children make, but if they become a problem for anyone else, <laughs> tell them to shut up or something. Um, 
Okay, I'm Kirsten, and so I'm from the Open Food Network. Um, we are a global community working basically to try and uh, solve some of these problems of direct and collaborative values-based supply chains. We have, um, amongst our community, we have farmers, what we call values-based supply chain partners like food hubs and wholesalers and things like that, along with lots of software developers and other supporters. Uh, we're focused on supply chains because we uh, believe that without this, we can't scale uh, the outcomes and what our movement is trying to achieve. So scale doesn't mean each farm needs to get really big or be selling a long distance, but what we do need to do is scale the amount of land that is managed in the way that we think it needs to be, and we need to scale the actual ecological impact that we're trying to have. So having a lot of diversity and experimentation in how we do supply chains is critical, and that's critical for each business, you know, for each farming enterprise, as well as regions, as well as nations. Uh, we very strongly believe in working together and sharing knowledge to co-invest in building the kind of infrastructure and systems that we need, whilst doing this in a way that fundamentally supports localised context-specific innovation and people being able to really experiment, but that we don't have to keep reinventing the wheel. We can be collecting knowledge about what's working and we can be building systems that then make it easier for other people to replicate and build from that. Uh, so yeah, we're not about cookie cutters, but we are about capturing and sharing knowledge. Uh, we're also very much about technology sovereignty. We didn't talk about that when we started because it was quite a long time ago. Um, but really, we're very committed to open source. All of our technology is open source. Uh, all of our organisations are non-profit. We believe that the infrastructure and systems that we rely on to build this new movement need to be owned and controlled by us, not by venture capitalists or other kind of interests, and that we design to make it impossible to centralise control in ourselves or in anyone else in the supply chain. So if at any time you don't like what we're doing, go to GitHub, download your own copy of the code and do something different. Um, this clarity around our purpose and our active focus on infrastructure that enables collaboration is what sets us apart and is what has attracted people to us. So we started in Melbourne, Australia in about 2011, the idea. Uh, we now have partners all around the world. We have um, instances of the Open Food Network platform operating in 10 countries, uh, quite a few more on the way. And some of those are much bigger than others. Lots of them are just little startup, but we're all kind of learning together, finding money and resources together, finding the people to help together. So our main product is the Open Food Network platform, which is effectively a marketplace platform, an online sales platform, but it's specifically designed by and for farmers and food enterprises. Just about all of us who are involved in this have used it in some form, either running bulk food co-ops or selling our farm produce or working with food hubs. Most of our developers, in fact, all of our developers maybe, uh, have also been involved in actually operating food hubs. They know the space inside out. They're as committed as the rest of us, which is why they and everyone else earn a lot less than they would if they worked developing bank e-commerce systems. Um, yes, so what is it? So as a farmer, it's pretty straightforward. You can set up an online shop and you can set up a profile, tell your story, upload some products, upload some photos, set up some payment methods and start selling produce without having to build a website. If you do have a website, 
you can, although there's a bug in it, <laughs> you can embed it in your own WordPress site or whatever so people don't need to come to that. But it also operates as a kind of a network like an Etsy or an eBay that people can come and, you know, who's a farmer selling chicken in my area um, and then go and buy from, from you. Um, the distribution system, no, I won't go there. So there's a couple of things about it that make it quite specific to people trying to do these kind of diverse experimentation in supply chains. Uh, the first one is about order cycles, is about a really fine control about when orders open and close and what products are available in those order cycles and a flexibility about, you know, my, I need my orders for eggs by Tuesday night so for my deliveries on Thursday, but I'm also going to do some deliveries on Friday and so those orders can close later and, you know, being able to manage all of this specificity around how people are trying to do experimentation in their supply chains. Also supporting, uh, understanding and supporting the kind of diversity in shipping methods, as we call them, so that some people are picking up from the farm. Often people have a network of kind of collection points, either at people's houses or at shops or at retail centres where it's all pre-sold, but people can pick up from there. Uh, as well as selling into wholesalers, selling to retail, selling to chefs, home deliveries, deliveries to businesses. So recognising that people are often doing a combination of these things and want to be able to do a combination of these things. And so being able to support that from one place is what we're aiming for. We also have quite a uh, complex system of like fees and tagging uh, that can enable you to control different prices and different product offerings to some of these different customers, like your retail, uh, your retail customers and your wholesale customers might have quite a different offering. So enabling that. And then some reports so you can download your packing sheets and all of that kind of stuff. And we have a kind of beta version we've been working on for quite a few years, quite complex, uh, around subscriptions. So people, you can now set up a kind of a standing order, a subscription, kind of a CSA membership uh, for your customers within the same system. But where OFN really comes into its own is, so that's all as a single farmer managing your own products, is when you're kind of like, cool, I've got this great distribution network uh, set up, but the people next door have some honey and the farm up the road have some eggs, and wouldn't it be great if we could be selling that all together and using the same truck? Three minutes to go. Um, so Open Food Network is designed to enable this kind of networked e-commerce or collaborative distribution so that you can put together your combined shops, manage your distribution together, and apply all of this kind of same fine-grained functionality to, you know, which products are available by when and from whom and maintain this supply chain transparency. So even if I'm buying off this food hub over here, I can see which farmer it's come from and how much that farmer got paid. Uh, we work with quite a few bigger food hubs. Uh, we have a whole range of models around farmer cooperatives. We've done experiments with farmers markets, with online sales with Melbourne's farmers market. Um, we have a great group in Melbourne, not in Melbourne, Victoria, called Prom Coast Food Collective which is basically about you know, 30, 40, 30 or 40 farmers once a month. They all put up what they have available. People buy it. They all get together. It's kind of like a pop-up farmer's market, but it's all pre-sold, pre-paid, et cetera. Um, that model has also been tried in some other places as well, and we think it's got a lot of promise. And we work with some of the big uh, Food Connect in Brisbane, uses our software for their wholesale markets, and we now also do, having built this capability and team and you know, we're quite obsessive about food hubs and software and stuff that no one else ever wants to think about. Uh, we also do the software for series Fair Food. We manage this and build their software for them. 
and are starting to do bespoke software for other people that's outside our particular platform. Uh, I reckon I'm going to go one minute over, but I'm just going to talk really fast. All right. Uh, so, <laughs> so where are we actually at? Um, technically, we're moving from like bootstrapped, lots of volunteer finding bits of money everywhere to understanding that like this is actually working, this is growing, we're here to stay. Uh, we're investing in our own scale and viability. We're doing a lot of work behind the scenes and under the hood around actually kind of fixing up some of our technical architecture and the shortcuts we might have taken. So people can't really see that, but what people will see is big improvements in performance and things like that and fixing lots of bugs. We basically have feature development on hold and we're focused on making everything that we have work really well before we start trying to add more features. Uh, we've got a whole customer-facing redesign in the works, um, particularly around improving how it operates on mobile big change in terms of how much, how many people are trying to order from mobile and we want to completely redo things to meet that. And we're also moving into starting to introduce our first integrations, which is really exciting. So we're how Open Food Network talks to your MailChimp, how it talks to your accounting package, how it sends, your, sends orders straight into invoices and accounting, lots of those kinds of things. Um, there's some existing users of Open Food Network in the room in Australia. Thank you very much for your support, for sticking with us over the years. If you're interested in integrations, um, come and talk to us because obviously we want to work with the people who we're already working with first. Um, globally, we have a really big focus on fundraising at the moment because we really do want to increase this um, professionalisation and being able to pay more people for the work that they're doing in Australia. Uh, we are also focused on building our own viability and have been through a big process over the last 12 months of talking to a lot of our users and developing our business model. And what we've come up with is what we're calling community-supported software. And basically, <laughs> which is really, you know, for us it's important, like this is about um, being built from the movement for the movement. And it's not about us kind of setting a price and saying you pay it or go away. You know, we really wanted to be kind of like... How, how can we set this in a way that works for people but also has capacity to, you know, really support what we're trying to do? So we have community members at 1% of turnover and people can choose to be solidarity partners at 2 or 3% of their turnover. We've been pleasantly surprised as we're starting to talk to people and roll this out that quite a few people are voluntarily choosing the higher payment options because they believe in and supporting what we're doing, which is very exciting. I need to stop. You know what? I think I said everything. So basically, we, we exist to try and make this stuff easier for you. So come and talk to us. And yeah, we're open to ideas. And that's it. Uh, hello. Um, I'll probably start by talking about how I started out and that was working in kitchens and just seeing the poor quality of produce available. And then I started working at the Clearlight Cafe where Anne-Marie was actually bringing lettuces and I noticed how good they were and asked if I could come out and work one day a week at the food forest for free. And Anne-Marie gave it good consideration and said that would be okay. Um, and so basically, after doing that for six or eight weeks, I think, I said to Anne-Marie, I want to steal your idea. 
and grow lettuces for cafes. Um, she gave me my first seedlings and actually gave me my first customer, which was very kind. She, and she wasn't a difficult customer to deal with at all. <laughs> but that was fine. You've got to start somewhere. Um, and so that was growing in my backyard at Richmond in Adelaide. And then I was up at Strathalbyn at a farm I used to work at, getting some compost. And they suggested, um, pity you weren't a bit closer, you could do something here. And a couple of months later, I took them up on that. They'd actually forgotten they said it. And I leased 10 acres off of them and then was talking to another guy in the central market and he said, we, you can use my land at Ashton as well, which is in the Adelaide Hills. So that just started on a bigger scale, which was a massive shock because the soil you're starting with is just pasture and you get one or two good years and then you've really got to start from scratch. So just building up the soils has been the hardest thing. I then was selling to um, restaurants and pubs all over Adelaide, which I'd do two deliveries. I started off three delivery days a week and cut that back to two. And that was a good start for the business, but it was a lot of work, and dealing with chefs is not the easiest thing to do. Um, you can't rock up at lunchtime. These days it's even harder because a lot of it is done by text message, and sometimes you don't get a reply back. Um, it can be really hard work. I then started at the Adelaide Farmers Market when that started, and that was good to do. I also had my shop at the same time, so I had a lot going on, but I had to, you've got to get the money coming in. That's the thing. It's got to be cash flow, otherwise, you know, why you, you just don't get anywhere. And it's a roller coaster. So one day you're thinking, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? And then the next day, someone will ring you up and say, I've just seen your stuff, it's amazing. Can we have it? And then you're clicking your heels together and you're like, yeah, that's why I'm doing it. So it's, it's up and down. you just got to ride that wave. Um, and I found it overwhelming myself with all the jobs I had to do. Um, now I just think about one or two things. And when that's done, I look at others. Um, but anxiety is also a tool for getting things done. I have weed anxiety. That's a motivational tool. Um, another thing that I had to get over was I loved growing things, but I didn't like picking them or selling them. So a lot of lettuce would go to seed, and I just, it's picking is the hardest thing for me, but that's why you do it. Someone said to me, this is why you do it, and I was like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so once you get over that and you're standing out the back of, or at the front of a restaurant, and you're like, you've got a box of your beautiful stuff, and you just, you know, you've got butterflies, and you just have to walk through that door and say, can I speak to the chef, you know? And they'll either be really happy to see you, or they'll be yelling at someone, or throwing something, and then you're a breath of fresh air, and you walk out of there like, yeah, we'll have three boxes on Friday. And you just feel really good, and then you go into the next place, and you rarely get knocked back. If you do, you probably didn't want to deal with that person anyway. Um, so that was, that was good. And then doing farmers markets, it was great to talk to people, but very draining mentally and physically because you spend, you're growing so many different lines to get the sales. You can't just grow three or four things. You know, it's up, 
like 30 different lines, thinking three months ahead, I've got to plant this, or I'm going to run out of that, and you do run out of things, it's impossible for someone to have year-round produce of everything. Um, so it's just a massive load, and then talking to people all day, so you have a massive picking day, bunching, all sorts of things, and then a big day at the market talking to people, and at the end of it, you're actually completely drained. And the next day, you're drained as well. Like, you don't know what to do, you're confused, and then Tuesday, you're back to normal. So there's three days gone out of your week, and then you've got four days to grow it again, and then you're doing it all again, and it's just monotonous and on and on and on. <laughs> so that was a great way to start. <laughs> But then my lifestyle now is a lot different because I just sell wholesale and I pick what I grow. I, I just have stone fruit, avocados, citrus. And I mainly grow um, uh, pumpkin, collie, cabbage, broccoli, celery, but not for all year round supply. So I'll grow when the season is the best to grow them and then when I think I'll have the best sales and that's just a matter of learning. You have to learn, like every different line has a completely different growing system, cycle, and once you get that down pat, it's easy, but it's a long journey to get that, and you have to admit your mistakes. Someone who doesn't admit their mistakes will never learn anything, and you come up with your system, and once you get your system right, you don't change it. You can add little changes, but don't change your whole system. You can have a little trial patch, you know? Like, don't reinvent the wheel. Have a look at what other people are doing. Take their ideas. Um, you know, things like, oh, I'm going to use sawdust emulsion this year. And then you do that, and you've suddenly got all this raw carbon in your soil, so then you've got no nitrogen. So just doing little things like that that you think is a great idea at the time, but then down the track can really, you know, hurt you. So just don't try and get too inventive, just stick to what you know. <laughs> and uh, trial and error is a great thing, that's how I've learned, but you need to admit those mistakes you've made. Like a lot of people blame the plants, they blame the weather, they blame the soil, their workers. At the end of the day, if it's your show, then you've got to take responsibility for everything that goes wrong as well as everything that goes right. And just picking your market, what you like to grow, that was the big thing that Anne-Marie said to me at the time. She said, grow what you like to grow, you know. People also have to want to buy it, so... But, you know, and trying to grow too many things um, is... You just... You can lose yourself and get frustrated, so... Yeah, what you like to grow, grow it really well, and if you have a really good product, it sells itself, so... The hard work is done. Um, and yeah, just keeping everything in perspective of what you're doing, keep calm, <laughs> and yeah, just every day, you know, day to day, um, and yeah, just, it's all about the lifestyle, so if you don't like working every day and doing, you know, being responsible for a lot of things, then Farming's probably not your gig. If you want to do it nine to five, Monday to Friday, it's definitely not your gig. Um, so, yeah, if it's in you, it's a passion. So if you want to be a great musician, it's got to be your life. If you want to be 
a great artist. It's got to be your life. If you want to be a great farmer, it needs to be your life. Like, you need to be thinking about it all the time, not so that you're driving yourself crazy, but just in the back of your mind. Uh, how am I going to do that? This is what I'll do. And then you, it's, it's very psychological. You've got to put yourself in the right frame of mind. And then when the crunch comes, you're ready for it. And, yeah, don't look at a whole paddock that you've got to pick. Just look at the row, you know. Keep on that row. And, yeah, I used to drink beer. and I used to put a fizzy carrot at the end of the row. <laughs> but I don't need to drink beer anymore, so it's good. Yes, uh, I'll talk short because there's no, no sound. Hayden is also the only guy I know with a Lamborghini, and that's his tractor. <laughs> <laughs> um, good morning. Uh, it's actually, I've only recently met Hayden and we do business together now, but. It, and we haven't discussed this, but there'll be a number of similarities which I thought were, were very um, insightful for me anyway in, in what I do and how I approach things, uh, but with some differences as well. I've been asked to talk, uh, give an overview of uh, how I operate. You can start. Yeah. Uh, how I operate, and this is a video that was uh, prepared by for Tasting Australia, so it's a very quick insight. The sound isn't working, so I'll have to um, just indicate to you what's happening. Oh, I'm in the way. Over here. Thank you. Um, so I'm in the Barossa, uh, the southern end of the Barossa. I have 80 acres. I've been on that property for nearly 40 years. Uh, the starting point of what I do is to milk cows. Um, it's why I bought the property initially. I established a, a dairy from a sheep property um, and I used to produce a commodity which was milk and I sold it in the typical way in which one does sell milk. Um, Ten years ago I um, changed my way of operation, operating. I milk now no more than f uh, 20 cows. I produce cream, milk and buttermilk, cream, sorry, cream, butter and buttermilk. Um, and also I uh, raise the, uh, the heritage breed pigs on milk, which is a traditional way of raising uh, pigs about when, when mixed farms were common and um, there'd be a diversity of, uh, of different operations on one farm rather than a monoculture. Um, this is uh, some images from the, the butcher that I work with in Slaughterhouse. This is delivery, some shots of the farm. There we go, so get rid of that. Um, there's three specific questions I've been asked to discuss. What channels do I use for marketing my product? What's the most profitable? And what's the relative amounts of labour associated with those different channels? Uh, the channels I use are the farmer's market. So I go to the Brossa farmer's market and I go to the Adelaide farmer's market. I've been going to the Adelaide one 
for about 18 months, uh, but Barossa for, since I started about 10 years ago. I, uh, the, another key source of uh, outlet for me are restaurants in the Barossa and in Adelaide. Um, I do mail order. And there's one retail store, quite a significant one in Adelaide, is the only other place you can buy my products over the counter, and that's at Lucia's at the Adelaide Central Market. I don't supply any supermarkets. I used to supply uh, the Barossa Co-op, but I stopped that about a week ago. Um, uh, how did I develop those markets? Well, these are some of the key themes that I think that I've relied upon to develop my brand and those outlets. First of all is to, and th these, some of these themes are reoccurring uh, through Hayden, what Hayden said and what was said earlier this morning in talking to the restaurants, uh, from the restaurants operators and the supermarkets. One is to build relationships um, with chefs, with front of house staff and, uh, and promotions. Um, the, you know, Hayden's explanation of walking into, uh, into the kitchen and getting to know the chef, what they're looking for, what they're looking at, what they're uh, hoping to achieve with their menus and their styles. Um, and also to provide samples uh, either to those chefs or in those uh, outlets that you're using, which is um, the farmer's markets in particular. Um, I see so many storeholders around me that are hoping people will buy product just on the basis that's displayed in their cabinet. Uh, if you come to my stall, you almost can have breakfast. There's bacon, there's sausages to try, there's butter, there's cream, and there's some other products from different times. And I, you know, sometimes I feel a little guilty about this, but if I can convince someone to have a sample, it's about 80, 90% will come a sale. Um, a lot of people will resist taking a sample um, and I convince them that it's worth uh, the effort and then if I can get it past their lips, it's just about almost guaranteed a sale. Uh, because it is different and it, you know, they are surprised by the quality or the flavour or the taste. Um, the other thing is to build, invest and communicate your story. Um, and to be always, uh, it, it's, as Hayden would say, quite exhausting being at markets, um, but because you've got to be retelling the story, reinventing the story, and being willing to talk to people consistently. And when you're not naturally like that, um, it is hard work. I mean, lots of people just love to talk. I live with people in my household that... Um, from, from different cultures that, you know, particularly the French are just blah, 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 constantly. And I, I find that very exhausting personally. Uh, I love to see it and observe it, but it is actually, some people are good at it and do it all the time and some people are just much more private. Um, I'm more the private person, but I'm a, capable of, of stepping out of that, but it is quite exhausting. The other part is to know your market and to supply, to get to understand your market and supply accordingly. If I go to the Barossa Farmers Market, there's not, people aren't, very few are doing a weekly shop. It's mainly tourists that are passing through. It's very hard to sell perishable products to people who are on the road. Um, it, you have to convince them why they might, how they could, 
They'll give you every excuse of getting on the plane in the afternoon. They can't take it interstate. They think they can't. You've got to have an answer for all of those questions and eventually they'll buy the product. But it is, it's sort of one, one sale, one, you know, $20 or $10. If you go to the Adelaide farmer's market, it's people with, uh, with baskets, with trolleys, with... Yeah, and so they're buying for their weekly shops. So there's two different markets in those two different farmers' markets that are operating. You need to understand that and be prepared for it and approach it uh, differently. Um, the other thing is always say yes. Whatever the question is, you can do it. Um, uh, because, I mean, as chefs will, will want to know, they want to know that you can... Uh, they want a particular product... Um, or a cut or, a, or whatever, and you say, yes, that will be fine, and worry about how you'll deliver it afterwards. Because <laughs> the, and, and accordingly, a bit like the anxiety question drives you, of course, creating that uh, challenge drives you as well, and you, you will solve that issue. Um, what people, if you want to build a brand and a market and be reliable, you really have to be dependable in that way. Uh, and always supply based on not second grade, but a supply and quality as well. Um, you work it out afterwards after having said yes. Uh, for me, the farmers' markets have been essential uh, for showcasing your products. There's many chefs that travel through farmers' markets looking for new ideas and products, um, and it uh, gives you new leads. It helps to build the network and it's also supporting the collective as well of the type of people that are around in this, in this room. Um, the, you know, farmers markets at the same time, in the same way that Hayden has said, they're fairly unforgiving. Um, it's time away on weekends, but we're in a business, again, as Hayden has said, that if you're, you want to be an artist, you've got to have a, that's your commitment in your life. You want to be a a great sports person that becomes a commitment in your life. If you want to be a good farmer and food producer, because there's a difference, um, that's the commitment in your life. And if you're not willing to approach it in that way, you, will, you won't ultimately be successful. Uh, what's the most profitable? Um, there's no doubt that um, the, uh, that the typical model of farming doesn't work and that for farming uh, we've got to move into the retail uh, area. So I'll put it to you this way, that the question I often put to people to help them understand is, do farmers produce food? Now, it's a loaded question. The answer to that is no, um, uh, because others turn the commodity into food. Um, so farmers produce a commodity generally. Um, people in this room are different. We produce the commodity and take it to market as well and turn it, either convert it because it's got to be pasteurised or it's got to go through processes that packaged or whatever it is to sell it into food. So the typical farming model is not successful financially, but what we do by food from farmers is um, just very briefly. The, the restaurant retail market is the most profitable to me. It, you know, my overall turnover, it's about 60% each week. 
and it probably represents about 10 transactions. And my delivery costs, the cost to the customer, are about 2%. Farmers markets, on the other hand, is that it takes about 200 uh, transactions to equate to those sales. Um, the cost of production, of getting it to market is more like 15%, not 2%. Um, but the markets are nonetheless, if you're going to have an integrated operation, the markets are essential for capturing not second grade quality, but what you weren't able to sell, um, because in the end you want to be able to sell everything you produce each week, and it's a constant measure of satisfaction for me that my freezers are empty, my fridges are empty at the end of the week, that I'm able to work out uh, through a fairly complex range of products that I produce that they all get out into a customer's hand one way or the other in that week. So the key messages for new uh, players is don't be put off in the early stages. It takes a long time to develop a following, but uh, and that's essential. When you've got a following, well, then you've got reoccurring customers. Um, invest in your story, learn to say yes and how to spell it, um, <laughs> and if it's not enjoyable, don't do it. Us a fantastic insight into the, the differences between the, the different model and the challenges and the satisfaction and all of those sorts of things. So what we'd like to do now is open it to questions and I guess tease out some of those issues and observations that have been raised. So first question, Matt, looks like you. Hi. Um, hey, you, you once said to me that it took you 20 years to um, get serious about farming. Um, yeah, I think like anything, 20 years is like any profession. Um, you need 20 years to get good at it. And also the confidence. Um, the play farming thing is uh, good fun. And uh, if you can afford to do it, it's, you know, it's a great pastime. Uh, but... At the end of the day, you've got to have cash flow and keeping a farm, as anyone that has one would know, is a very expensive thing and there's always costs around the corner. So slowly but surely is the best way. Um, don't buy things that you think you need. Buy them when you need them and try and borrow stuff before you buy it yourself because I have equipment that I bought seven years ago that I still haven't used, um, and that's sitting there, that's cash. You've got to look at everything as cash, and always keep, keep money aside for those unexpected things, and just, yeah, grow slowly. Um, try to avoid borrowing money if you can, um, but if you do, then the, you probably need off-farm income to cover your mortgage. It's, so, yeah, just starting slowly, building slowly, and 
not putting too much risk into um, something that you haven't done before. Like, don't invest too much. Start off really small if you're doing a new line. Start off really small, get it right, and then you can start slowly expanding. Last year I tried to grow tomatoes. I've never commercially done tomatoes before. And I thought, yep, yeah, I'm going to get them in early, plastic covers. I put in 3,000 plants. And I was doing too many other things. I didn't know what I was doing. And I just ended up writing off that whole crop. And basically, I'll have a lot of tomatoes coming up next summer. <laughs> but I was looking to, you know, I was chasing that golden egg. And you, you, you just cannot, you, you learn the hard way. People can tell you so many times, but really try not to make those mistakes too expensive when you make them, because you need to. And yeah, and just don't get in over your head. Start small and slowly, slowly build up. Any other questions? Yeah. Um, it's a question about um, marketing. Do you, um, to anybody in particular, or the, pa the panel? Whoever. Yeah. Okay. Um, I guess from the, I guess the two. Um, oh, what was really the problem? Um, from a percentage of time perspective, so we do some wholesale and we do retail. For me, the answer is no, uh, because I think you're always marketing. Uh, when you're at, with, with my model anyway, you're, when you're at farmers markets, uh, when you, I del deliberately will take the boxes into the chef myself, even though I've got some assistance, um, or may do, they might carry the box because there's only one, but I'll go in, I'll leave, and I'll get, you know, they'll double the order for next week just because you're engaged in discussion. So I don't sit back and say, I'm going to spend five hours this week on marketing. As a, you just, you've got to always think that you're always marketing. The, a, good case, a good example this week is that I went into a restaurant, a small order, came back with two, next two or three weeks with five or six times just because I started a conversation with the chef. And I, and I cause them to think about the forward 
their forward menus that they had even started to think about, um, just by engaging in conversation. And you, of course, you do that at farmers markets if you're telling your story. So I say, don't allocate time to marketing, always be marketing. Um, I think it's a really interesting question. It is one of the reasons, I think, that a, a lot of people, when they are looking to, to scale a bit or when farmers' markets become just too exhausting or are not working, uh, do move towards models like food hubs and aggregators where it's like their identity and the quality of their product and the values of what they're doing are still you know, still very much part of the picture, but they're collaborating with other farmers to have a shared marketing and distribution kind of arm who's doing a lot of that for them. And when we're looking at the, um, you know, the pricing on that, often I think we're sort of at, you know, you really can't be putting less than a 20 to 30% markup at that point when someone's doing aggregation, but that's including, you know, packing and distribution, but that's where a lot of that marketing is also happening. It's also another, um, the one thing that got cut off the end of my thing was Jen here is working with the Open Food Network, uh, is doing a lot of the development around supporting some of these other non-software kind of services and really starting to look at what can we do for the people using Open Food Network that's kind of amplifying, taking some of that marketing load of driving customers to them because it is, you know, it's expensive to be trying to do all your social media and your marketing and, you know, that kind of every relationship, every chef, you know, there is a real, I think there's a scale limitation on that, especially if you are someone interested in trying to take on some more broad acre, larger parcels of land um, to try and maintain the quality in the story and your, what you're doing but have that absolute one-on-one -on -one relationship with everyone by yourself is potentially, you know, a bit overwhelming. Um, yeah, I totally agree with the constant marketing um, thing. And if you believe in your product, it just will flow naturally. If, you know, and you love what you do, people see that it makes you happy and they want to be a part of that. And I think secretly everybody wants to be a farmer so they want to be a part of it and yeah it's just it's just a really nice thing to be able to share with people so it's the money comes because you're doing something you love um you're not actually like i do think i need i need i'll need them it's the water is very costly this year so i need to put money aside for that because we don't know what's going to happen with the drought and the river um, allocations will get less and less, so you've got to um, always be expecting the worst, but, you know, just riding, riding whatever happens, it's all good and up and down, and it's good fun, so, yeah. Thank you. Uh, any other questions to the more and more farmers markets coming up every week, um, like with a constant approach to do more and more farmers markets. And I've sort of been thinking about like at a certain point there's sort of spreading the market a little bit too thinly, like it's very, 
and I, I feel like it's become such a fashionable thing. Everybody wants to start a farmer's market. Um, yeah, I, I just wonder if you guys have any thoughts on where farmer's markets are heading. So the question is, uh, are there so many farmer's markets establishing because it's the, the theme of the month? And is there a, a, a sweet spot? And the, the question is, are there many, too many markets? What are their thoughts? It's not a matter that I've thought about too much because I haven't seen in South Australia um, that, that sort of uh, growth in farmers markets. But what we do see is growth in markets that pretend to be farmers markets. So they're just people selling on. And I think we've got a role in calling that out for what it is. Um, and just a, a recent example is the... Um, in Gawla, um, there's a, a market that is a privately run one rather than community one that was calling it, and the, the council had agreed to rent public space uh, to them for this, and the council saw that as good for the community, a new offer in the town centre, and good for the, for the town's identity. Now, a group of us got together and lobbied the council um, about the ethics of that and that if they were and it was on a trial basis and if it was to be um, uh, continue to operate that it was wrong to call it a farmer's market and they took that on board um, and yes it runs as a market but it's not marketed as a farmer's market or they, the intention is when this trial period finishes they'll, they'll have to re um, rebadge themselves so that they're not misleading the public. So that's what that's the the growth I see is that that what would be entrepreneurs are seeing there's some success in farmers markets and are seeking to event manage and, and create a market themselves that isn't necessarily legitimate. And we need to be aware of that and respond to it. <coughs> Um, this is a bit of a uh, contentious one for me um, because there is, there's, there's dishonest people in every walk of life and uh, when I, in the fruit and veg game, it's particularly uh, money is the boss. Like, so people are selling on and when you're up against people who are buying from their neighbours, buying second grade produce, um, to sell at the markets from their neighbours, they never run out and they don't have to do the work to grow it. So there will always be that in markets. I think farmers' markets are a great thing, but there's only so many people doing the right thing and actually growing it. I know the Adelaide Farmers' Market has put in audit systems in the past and these were not currently going on anymore, I don't think. Um, I was a part of that audit system and I received this certificate after 12 months and only one other grower out of 10 received the certificate. Five years later, the other eight growers who are big growers, it was, I asked the auditor what was happening and he said, oh, it's still ongoing and now that's been dropped by the current management. Um, and a part of why I left the Adelaide Farmers Market was that I wanted to bring attention to this happening and I was basically pushed out. Um, so it is a bit of a touchy thing and it took me a long time to get over it. 
but it happens in all walks of life. There's corruption everywhere. There's really good people at the market, and then there's other people who are just there for the money and to make as much money as they can. It's up to the consumer to be aware of this because everybody thinks, oh, it's a farmer's market, they must be farmers, and sure, they are growing stuff, but you can't have 50 different lines every week, and it's just not possible to do that. So there's definitely on-selling going on in every single market, and there's good people in every single market. So it's just up to the consumer. If you see someone who's got absolutely pristine produce, and they've got 10 different bunch lines and a different coloured rubber band on every bunch, that's to be suspicious of because you don't pull out your red ones and put purple ones in your pocket because you're picking carrots now. You know, you should know the difference between leeks and carrots without the coloured rubber band. So <laughs> things like that. Next time you're at a farmer's market, just look out for that. It probably means they've bought it in. Yeah, just a quick comment because... Chloe's from Victoria. So I'm not sure, in Victoria we have a really good farmer's market accreditation system, the VFMA, and they do actually go and, you know, pretty solid that someone selling at a VFMA farmer's market is accredited. So I'm, are you talking, you're talking about the actual concentration of VFMA markets or are you talking about other, yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's a really interesting question. I mean, when you, when you look at Australia compared to other places like the States or, you know, Europe and their kind of tradition of weekly markets, you know, it seems like there's potential for a lot more, you know, and particularly things like the Elphington Farmers Market, which are now doing weekly, so really starting to get this kind of change of behaviour. I mean, you'd probably have a better insight than me, but my understanding is that there are some markets that are really big that it's hard to get into as a new smaller grower because they're kind of pretty much stitched up and maybe what so your experience might be very different from someone who's like a lamb or pastured poultry or something like that where there's maybe more operators trying to get into the farmers markets it's my understanding that it is always quite hard to have the fresh organic range of produce and maybe that's why you're getting tapped so much um so i think it'd be an interesting thing to actually talk to the vfma about, you know, whether it's actually at what point it starts to cannibalise other channels or put, put too much pressure on people or start to be saying, well, are there some ways to tweak this a little bit so it's actually more sustainable for the farmers who can't actually cover all of these markets? How are you supporting more growers to fill the things that you're having trouble getting into these markets?
Adelaide Farmers for Apps. Uh, to my 